0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, well, good morning, church. All right, good to see you. Uh, Just let me uh, go ahead and address the fact that uh, we are wearing masks, but I, I don't think I can preach with a mask on, so please forgive me if I'm not wearing this the whole time. But uh we are back online so if you're uh tuning in good to see you or actually good for you to see me I would I guess that's more appropriate but uh we are trying our best as a church to follow the the guidelines uh of our of our government and our local governments and also just be a good witness and a biblical witness of loving our neighbor as ourselves so um, so thanks for being here and wearing a mask you all look much better this Sunday than last Okay nope. Uh, Maybe you laughed online, but I doubt it. So um, anyways, uh, as we get into Scripture, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go ahead and like kind of skip ahead a little bit. Uh, as we, we left off last week, Jesus is now doing uh, ministry to the Gentile area. And so he uh, heals a demon-possessed daughter of a Syrophoenician lady, a Greek lady. And uh, then he goes on and he heals another Gentile man who's uh, deaf and mute. And then he does the feeding of the 4,000. But we're going to pick up about verse 11 because it will get referenced back to that. So, um, you know, as we've gone through this uh, last week, we've gotten a lot of questions about uh, how our church is going to handle uh, this pandemic, what we're going to do moving forward. A lot of questions out there. And, and uh, Abby, my wife and I, we were talking and she said, you know what? I just want to talk to the person who really knows. I want to talk to the person who actually really knows what, what this Virus is all about instead of all this other stuff that you hear all over the place. And sometimes you just want answers. And so sometimes you have to ask questions. And, uh, you know, we don't have all the answers, uh, but we, we do hear a lot of questions. Uh, maybe you have a kid and your kid has gone through the question stage. You know, the why stage, where they just keep asking why, 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 why. Uh, so that, that happened in our, in our family. And it was always questions that I couldn't answer, like, Daddy. Why is the sky blue? And uh, I didn't pay attention in science, so I have no idea why. Um, you know, maybe a reflection of the ocean. That's not it. So, um, you know, why, well, why is water wet? And then you would say, well, that's how God made it. And they would say, but why? Why did God make it wet? I, I don't know. And then they would say, well, why is, why is an orange called an orange? Like, why did, it, why did it not get its own name as a fruit? Why is it just named after the, the color? I, I, I don't know. You know, and then my son, he asked really hard questions that you couldn't quite answer. Uh, and I don't know if this is exact, but this is the best we could remember. He said, uh, Daddy, how far purple about the moon? How far purple about the moon? Son, I don't, I don't know that. I... And he'd be like, well, tell me. Uh, <laughs> I know you're upset, but I don't know how far purple about the moon, son. I just do not know how far purple about the moon. So I say this to say there's a lot of questions. And uh, what's interesting about this section we're getting into is Jesus is going to ask questions. He's going to ask questions of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's going to ask questions of his disciples. And these are questions that we can read in Scripture and ask ourselves. And Jesus, he knows the answers. He's not asking questions to get answers. What Jesus is doing is uh, he's asking uh, questions to find out answers. So uh, what he's doing is he's asking these questions to find out answers. He's asking questions to reveal hidden attitudes, misplaced affections, and an absence of faith. And so as he asks these questions, what he does is he reveals in our heart the reason we have hidden attitudes. I I don't know about you, but maybe you've been praying, and you've actually been praying uh, to the Lord, and, and you're saying something because you know it sounds right. You know that that's how you're supposed to be praying, but on the inside, you're thinking, that's not even where my attitude is right now. He, he reveals our misplaced affections. When he asks questions like this, it's, it reveals to us that, man, our, our hearts are drawn to so many other things besides Jesus and an absence of faith. Do you not understand? Do you not understand what he's doing? So before we get into these questions, I'm going to pray for us and uh, we'll jump in. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that Jesus, you are revealed to us. You are our only hope and it is a wonderful mystery that you would come, that you would give your life and you give it on a cross so that we have life everlasting. And so God, if there's someone today who needs to ask questions, that they would ask questions, that you would reveal their heart, you would reveal their affections, you would refill uh, areas of, of uh, absence of faith. God, we just come to you now asking that you would speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. All right, first thing I want you to see here is why does this generation seek a sign? That's the first question we're going to get into. So Mark chapter 8, starting verse 11, you can follow along there on the screen. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went. To the other side. Jesus is being confronted by these Pharisees and they're coming, they're asking him a question. And you see there in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. So there's an argument that takes place. There, this, this is not some nice conversation. I mean, you're, you think about this scenario, these people are seeking Jesus out and they're confronting him with an argument. And, and it says they're seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. What what an interesting thing. If you go to the next uh, slide there, this this word test could be translated tempted. And in fact, it is. It's parazo in the Greek, and it means to test one maliciously. They're malicious in in their attack on Jesus. To try and test one's faith, virtue, character by enticing to sin. These religious leaders, they're coming, they're arguing with Jesus, and they're doing it maliciously because they want to expose Jesus. They want him to be a fraud, and they're doing everything they can to try to expose him. This, this word also shows up in Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be, what? Tempted by the devil. Now, if you take this word, parazzo, and you think about it for just a second, these religious people, these Pharisees, are actually doing the exact same thing that took place in Matthew chapter 4 with Satan. So these religious people are actually being used by Satan to tempt Jesus. You think Jesus was only tempted in this, in this time in the wilderness? No, Jesus was continually tempted, and he continually remained sinless. See, temptation can come from religious people just like it comes from Satan. Isn't that interesting? We could be used as pawns. Religion is often used by Satan to tempt people into believing that they need to follow rules or they need to act a certain way. But these religious rules and restrictions are nothing but a tool used to tempt people away from finding Christ as all-sufficient for salvation and sanctification. Now, this is a subtle temptation. This subtle temptation is malicious. It's a malicious lie, a malicious tool from Satan to make us believe that there's something we can do to earn salvation or to even be more sanctified. Well, if I just do this, then I will be better and better and better. And it takes our eyes off of Jesus Christ as being all-sufficient and puts it on what we can do. This temptation that is taking place is by these religious leaders. This also rears itself up, not in the same word, but shows back up later in the chapter in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. He said it plainly. Like, you guys get this, right? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Now, he looked at his disciples and said, I'm going to use Peter as an object lesson right here. Get behind me, Satan you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a temptation it is to look at the things of man rather than the things of God. It's such a subtle temptation to test us in our unfaithfulness to God, to to put more of our our energy and our thoughts and our focuses on the things of man than the things of God. You see, our enemy can use well-meaning people, both religious people And followers of Jesus to tempt, to trick, and to torment those seeking to live their lives focused on the cross. Jesus has, he's beginning to turn his eyes and his focus on the cross. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what God's called him to do for the redemption of the world. And he's put his face on that. And even Peter comes to him and says, No, no, you you don't need to do that. Let me tempt you to not follow through with obedience to God. You see, as we as believers, we either live focused on the cross. Or focused on our capabilities, and often we are tempted to take our vision and our focus off of the cross of Christ as being all sufficient, and put it on ourselves and think that we can be good enough. This is a subtle temptation. Matthew records the same story in Matthew chapter sixteen, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. Now, now Matthew he gives a different a different uh, opinion here. It's not just the Pharisees; it's the Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. So, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take. You guys are great at interpreting the weather. So, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except... The son of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So Matthew gives us a little bit more commentary on what's happening here. He's telling these Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees represent two different religious groups, and they're, they're viciously opposed to one another, but yet they've come together because they have a common enemy, and it's Jesus Christ who is wrecking their religious system. And so they've come together, these Pharisees, the separated ones. These are the keepers of the law, these are the separatists. They, uh, they are all about rigid devotion and extreme obedience. And so this is their religious call. We're going to be the best. The Sadducees, however, they're, they're kind of running the temple and doing different things. we about pleasure, about indulgence, all about using the religious system for their own benefit. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they had a YOLO mindset, kids, right? Like, YOLO. You only live once. Okay, so no, no resurrection. They would prioritize some laws and bend others to live a life of pleasure, power, and political prestige. Now get these two groups. You got this group separatists we're better we're following all the traditions this group we're going to use the religious system for our benefit we're going to twist rules and we're going to come out on top you've got these two groups coming against jesus and one of them is self-reliant they have a self-reliant attitude the pharisees and a self-indulgent attitude of the sadducees and if we have a self-reliant attitude and a self-indulgent attitude we will be blind from seeing jesus as lord when we begin to take our focus off of the cross and put it on what we can achieve and our capabilities, we lose sight of Jesus being Lord. Look, Matthew says it this way uh, in Matthew chapter 12, 38 through 40. When some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Do you see a a repetitive nature here in scripture? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Now you might say, well, I don't think Jesus was, that was he was counting, right? Well, if you count the Hebrew calendar, it's three days. Friday, Saturday, and he rose on Sunday. There's three days. And so he's saying this, this is the sign. If you want a sign, this is going to be it. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are non-negotiable truths without which Christianity would not exist. So here's the question. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? That's the question we all, have to, we all have to wrestle with. Do you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? You know why? Because as the famous comedian would say, here's your sign. This is it. But so many people, when they're talking about their faith, when they're, when they're really wrestling with their faith, they're like, God, if you'll just send me a sign... I'll know that this is what you want me to do. If you'll just, if you'll just give me a sign, and they're, you know, they're looking for all different kinds of signs. They're looking at the sky. Oh, it's red sky at night. So you know, They're looking for a sign, and he says, look, here's your sign. This is what you get, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, he will give you eternal life. He will forgive you of your sins because he has defeated death and sin. And he has risen again. And because of his resurrection, we have a hope of a resurrection. That's, that's your son. That should have got an amen, but you have mask on, so I understand. Okay, so number two, second question. Do you not yet perceive or understand, are your hearts hardened? So let's continue reading verse 14 there. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So they get in the boat. They've just fed the 4,000. And they forgot to grab the baskets. They got one loaf. And they're all... I'd say probably, you know, guys, they're all arguing. Well, I told you to get the bread. Well, I thought you were going to get the bread. Oh, who should have got the bread? And so they're all arguing and Jesus says, Hey, this is a great time for me to give you a teaching lesson. So he begins to give them a teaching lesson. And their response is, yeah, but we don't have any bread. Yeah, but we're, we're going to be hungry, right? We, we're going to be, we're going to be hungry. And so he, he says this, he says, I want you to watch out. I want you to be aware. Now, when I graduated, uh, college it, it took me a while to kind of get my feet you know underneath me and in, in, in the working world and so for one summer i worked for a gutter company and, and this was quite humorous you know because uh, i have no construction experience whatsoever and so i was in charge of going out and measuring houses and i would draw up the plans of all the gutters that you would need for your roof and, and you know the pitch of the roof and i'd figure out all that stuff and i would actually turn that in to the gutter company and be like here's here's this and there was something that I would look for every time I went to someone's house, and it was this sign right here, beware of dog, okay? Because I, I would go in some places, and there'd be a fence, and I'd be like, I know, I know there's a dog on the other side, and you're like, but Jeff, you're a dog person. Yes, I'm a little dog person, a little dog person, not a big dog person, not really a chihuahua person, because they're kind of like a rat, but a little dog person, Right? But I was scared to death if I went into someone's yard, their backyard, and there's this big old dog and it would be like, and I'll be like, "Ah." and I would like, you know, I'd kind of like, yeah, it's about, you know, and I just kind of measure it and just run on. Right. He's like, look, you got to beware. You need to watch out. You need to be on high alert. Be on high alert. There is something that wants to work its way into your thought process and contaminate your Christianity. He's like, you're over here talking about your bread. You're over here talking about not having enough food, but I want you to watch out because there is something that wants to work its way into your thought process and contaminate your Christianity. It wants to contaminate the way that you think about Jesus Christ and the cross. It's going to contaminate the way that you follow him. And it's the leaven of legalism and the leaven of lawlessness. He says, look, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, this legalism. Watch out for the leaven of Herod or the Herodians, this lawlessness. Because a little leaven of legalism turns into a whole entire batch of hypocrisy. He's like, if you're not careful, you know how it works? You take a little bit of yeast and you work it into the dough. I don't know. I've just been told. I've never done that. But, you know, you take a little bit of yeast, you work it into the dough, and it spreads through the whole thing. He's like, look, you take a little bit of legalism in your life and the way that you view Christianity, beware because it's going to lead to an entire batch of hypocrisy. That's why he said to the the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is dirty. You hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Watch out, because a little bit of legalism leads to a whole batch of hypocrisy, and a little bit of leaven of lawlessness turns into an entire batch of worldliness. If you're going to take just a little bit of this lawlessness, I don't really have to follow that rule. I don't really have to follow that section of Scripture. And you're going to work it into your life. Get ready, because it's soon going to lead to a whole batch of worldliness. So Jesus is warning that if your focus is on the temporal and not on the eternal, your heart will grow hard towards the things of God. They're so focused on this loaf of bread that they don't get the teaching of Jesus at this moment. They're so focused on the temporal that they're missing the eternal and they're viewing their Christianity wrong and their hearts, if they're not careful, will grow hard towards the things of God. This is why 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen, if you take a little bit of a little bit of lawlessness and you work it into the batch, you're going to have a whole life of worldliness. And if you love the world, if you love the temporal, if you put all of your affections into the things of this world, watch out. Because the love of the Father isn't in you. Now, if you'll take your Bibles and turn me to Romans. Now, I'm going to read a, a hefty section here, but I'm going to read this hefty section because I want you to see in Romans chapter 1... That a little bit of lawlessness turns into a whole batch of worldliness. And this is what all Paul's saying here in the first part of Romans chapter 1. He's saying, look, you take a little bit of this, though you know God, you work it into your life, you're gonna, it's going to contaminate the way that you see your Christianity. So Romans chapter 1, 18, starting there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Keep going verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God with images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Verse 28. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now flip over to chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those Who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be a wrath and a fury. So here's here's what Romans is saying: a little a little pinch of lawlessness, if you're not careful, will work its way into an entire batch of worldliness. And the warning is clear. In the words of Jesus and in the words of Scripture, if you take your affections for the glory of God and place your affections on the satisfaction of the flesh, though you know God, his wrath on sin is still on you. This is the warning sign. Beware of a little bit of leaven. You see, the the thing is, is we need to see the gospel. The gospel only becomes glorious when our sin is seen as Grievous. When we begin to see sin as grievous as what put Jesus Christ on the cross, we begin to see the gospel more clearly. But instead of seeing our sin as grievous, we gratify it. We let a little leaven invade the whole batch. Instead of loathing our sin, we are loving it. Instead of destroying our sin, we are desiring it. And when we do that, we belittle the cross and we deceive ourselves. He says, watch out. He's focusing on the cross. Not on capabilities. He's saying, look, if you're not careful, if you begin to work a little bit of lawlessness into your life, you'll have a whole batch of worldliness. And you'll begin to live in a way that belittles the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'd hate to think that my view of Christianity is belittling the cross, wouldn't you? Let's keep going. Third, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, Do you not hear? Here's the next questions that pop up, starting in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand He's like, wait, are you, are, you not, are you not getting this? He's like, do you not have eyes to see and do you not have ears to hear what, what you've been perceiving? And he says, look, if you begin to accept sin, accepted sin blinds our gospel vision and deafens our gospel hearing. If, if there's accepted sin in your life, if you're only focusing on the temporal, you're gonna find your, your, your gospel vision waning and you're gonna find your gospel hearing going deaf. This, this, is, what Jesus, this is what John says about Jesus in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him what was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a darkness, there's a sin in this world. And the light of Jesus Christ comes and he shines bright in the darkness. But if we are accepting sin, we're allowing a darkness to remain in the way that we see the gospel. John would say this in eight twelve Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. They'll have gospel vision. What does it mean to walk in darkness? We've said this over and over and over. Number one, it sees sin as acceptable. To walk in darkness is to walk seeing sin as acceptable. 1 John 1, 6, if you say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. John's saying, look, you you can't walk in darkness. You can't walk in accepted sin and say you have fellowship with God. Number two, walking in darkness sees the faults in others and not in yourself. It's nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. I have contacts in today. If I took my contacts out, you would all be blurry. But man, I would look good because I can see really close up, right? And that's what nearsighted vision is spiritually. You look at yourself and you're like, look, I'm good. Everyone else is blurry, but I'm clear. Three, sees a desire or a feeling as superior to Scripture. This is what we see all the time in how people interpret their Christianity. Well, God wants me to be happy. No, he wants you to be holy. It's a blind spot. I think God's okay with me doing this. And so they take scripture out of context and they try to work their way around it so they can live with a blind spot. I don't know if you have a blind spot in your car, but if you don't know that there's a blind spot in your car, one day you're going to find out that there's a blind spot in your car because you're going to crash. You're going to hit somebody. If you're not aware of the blind spots, you're traveling down the road of faith and you're headed for disaster. There's blind spots. But not only walking in darkness, there's walking in deafness. Listening to self rather than scripture. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I think here's, here's the question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to gospel hearing. Are you hearing from Jesus? Are you, are you spending enough time in his word that the Holy Spirit is revealing himself to you? Because we're not, we're not inclined to have a gospel ear. We're inclined to have a me-centered ear. We're inclined to think, well, I, I think this is okay. I, I, and we we listen to ourselves, and we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble when we listen to ourselves, but we need to preach to ourselves. I know I feel this way, and I know I keep hearing this from other people, but this is what the gospel says, and I need to remind myself of it. Number two, walking in deafness listens to me-centered teaching rather than Christ-centered truth. Paul addresses this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, three through four for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If we're not careful, we'll we'll take this idea of religion and we'll put the people we want to listen to up on the stage and they'll they'll tell us everything that we're doing right. And we, we love it. Oh we can be good. We can follow these rules. And if we're not careful, we'll turn away from listening to the truth. So here's the last question. And do you not remember? Do you not yet understand? So let's read one more time. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? What a, what a great word, this word understand. In the Greek, this word means to bring together into one's mind or to make the connection. He, he says, look, remember what I did? Are you not putting two and two together? Have you not figured this out yet? that i came for jews and gentiles i came for everyone cuz everyone's a sinner have you not put two and two together yet do you not understand let me ask you have you made the connection the apostle paul did here's the connection here's the connection we all need to make every single day as we preach the gospel to ourselves first timothy 1:15 christ jesus came into the world to save sinners why did jesus come into the world save sinners and guess what i'm the worst I'm the worst. Church, I can, I, can, I can look at you and I can tell you look, I, I'm the worst sinner I know because I know every thought that goes through my head. And I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ came to save me because I was incapable of being good enough. I would never be good enough. There's not enough religious rules for me to follow to be good enough. A little bit, a legalism turns into a whole batch of hypocrisy, and and that's what we do sometimes. We we wear a mask, not to make a joke, but we wear a mask. The word hypocrisy means to to be an actor, to put on a show. And a lot of times we, we show up and we put on a show because we don't want to look bad. But a little bit of lawlessness, too, leads to a whole batch of worldliness. I'm the worst sinner I know, and I'm thankful that Jesus Christ came to save sinners And he did it through the death, burial, and resurrection. Do you believe? Can I pray? Can we respond to a God who loves us dearly? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons.